This episode is sponsored by Code Health. Code connects healthcare providers to the largest community of medical coding professionals in the country with over 4,600 domestic certified coders. As a single stop for all coding needs, Code's on-demand model has solved for daily staffing challenges and coding inefficiencies by allowing providers to access the right coder at the right time while gaining insights to better manage their coding operations. To learn more about Code, visit CodeHealth.com, that's K-O-D-E Health.com, or email Code directly at partnerships at CodeHealth.com. Hello, and welcome to Voices in Healthcare Finance. I'm Erica Grotto. Today, we conclude our series on maternity care and the revenue cycle with a look at childbirth around the world. We'll talk about payment process automation with today's sponsor, GHX, and then we'll discuss five trends in hospital mergers and acquisitions. And be sure to stick around for our special holiday message at the end of the episode. But first, as always, Rich Daly's got your latest healthcare finance news. This is Rich Daly, Senior Writer and Editor for HFMA, with your recent headlines in healthcare finance policy and practice. First up, several hospitals and advocacy groups recently filed suit to stop a Medicare hospital payment change that would cut 2019 outpatient payments by an estimated $380 million. The American Hospital Association and others urged the court to stop the payment cut for the hospital outpatient clinic services that are furnished in off-campus provider-based departments. The cuts are scheduled to begin January 1st. In other news, hospitals' overall Medicare margins deteriorated to negative 9.9% in 2017. That according to an analysis by Congress's primary advisory group. The Medicare Payment Advisory Commission recently reported that the overall Medicare margin for all hospitals had fallen below 2016, then worst, negative 9.7% margin. And finally, federal officials found slower-than-projected nationwide health care spending growth occurred in 2017. That was driven in part by reduced use of hospital outpatient services. Healthcare spending increased by 3.9% in 2017, according to the latest tally by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, Office of the Actuary. The rate of increase has been declining since peaking at 5% in 2015. Where do you go for help deciphering the latest regulations? HFMA, of course. As a member, you have exclusive access to peer-generated articles that make sense of ever-evolving policy changes and offer practical advice for navigating legislative landmines. Not yet a member? Join now. Visit hfma.org join to discover all the benefits of membership. Welcome back. Today, we're concluding our series on maternity care and the revenue cycle. When I first started this series, one of the first people I knew I would want to interview was Dr. Olakunle Olanyan, the president of Case Management Covenants. He talked about maternity care in a November 2017 article I edited for HFM Magazine, and I knew he would have some interesting insights. From the very beginning, you, the listener, have known this story was personal for me. And indeed, every interview had me reflecting on my own financial experience as my pregnancy progressed. But my conversation with Dr. Olanyan had me thinking about the clinical side of things. 
In this last piece of our series, we're discussing how expectant mothers are cared for in other countries and what we can learn by making comparisons. In the United States, maternity care is primarily driven by um, not just physicians, but um, of OBGYNs. Um, and so when we look at the differences, it starts all the way from the training. Um, in most parts of the world, the OBGYN is a specialist, and you would never see an OBGYN delivering a normal delivery. Um, they are reserved for um, very complicated cases. Um, in parts of the world where physicians do deliver babies, it will usually be a general practitioner, um, not an OBGYN. Um, and then even further down in many parts of the world, you have non-physician providers. Um, in most places, they're, they're called midwives who will deliver most low-risk um, babies. So you have a tier of different types of providers depending on the risk. Um, whereas in the United States, most babies are delivered by uh, OBGYN. Why is it, and I don't know that you have an answer for this, but why is it that that is different here? Because I know there are midwives here, so why are we not using them? Um, there are several reasons, and when you look at the history, it goes all the way back to the early 1900s. Um, in those days, maternal and child mortality was extremely high in most countries, Medicine was not well organized. Um, and the U.S. was in the forefront of organized medicine in terms of health insurance, in terms of the training of physicians and things like that. And in order to try to reduce the mortality rates from childbirth, the American Medical Association convinced Congress that only physicians uh, should be allowed to deliver babies. Um, and that essentially um, put midwives out of um, being able to deliver babies. Uh, and that hasn't changed much. Um, and, you know, the midwives will say it was partly competition because midwives are competing with OBGYNs. Um, and doctors for the de delivery of babies. But when you look at the history and you look at the kind of language, um, the physicians call the midwives quacks and dangerous and things like that. And that may have been the case over a hundred years ago. Whatever the capability of midwives a century ago, when it comes to infant mortality, their track record today is pretty good, especially when you look at mortality rates around the globe as compared with the United States. Let's talk about generally about infant mortality and maternal mortality. If you remember, I said that in the earlier part of the um, 19th century, I'm sorry, the 20th century, um, the 1910, 1920, there was a move to using primarily physicians because the infant and maternal mortality rate was so high and it was felt, and it does make sense that if we go to trained physicians, we will see the infant and maternal mortality rate come down. Now, fast forward to um, 1960. 
1960, the United States had an infant mortality rate of 26 per 1,000 births. And um, a country like United Kingdom um, had 22.5, which was not too different. Uh, Canada had about 27 per 1,000 births. Um, and a country like Portugal, which is a much poorer country than the other European countries, had a infant mortality rate of 77, which was extremely high. Um, so the U.S. was um, on a par with other countries, a little bit lower than Canada, a little bit higher than the United Kingdom. I use Canada and the United Kingdom because our health care um, systems are very similar in terms of physician training um, and in terms of protocols. Now, fast forward to 2013. Um, in 2013, the United States had an infant mortality rate of six, which is a huge improvement from 1960. But it is significantly higher than the UK. The UK is four, um, Canada is four, and Portugal is three. Remember, Portugal had a rate of almost 77 in 1960. Wow. Um, so our infant mortality rate has lagged behind other European countries. Um, in addition, when you look at our maternal mortality rate, um, it's uh, even... Um, a much different story. Um, our maternal mortality rate has actually gone up. Comparing 1990 to 2015, the United States has gone up from 12 to anywhere from 14 to 20, depending on the data you look at. Um, the United Kingdom has gone from 10 to 9. Portugal has gone from 17 to 10. Um, so when you look at the outcomes data in the United States, it is not as good as most European countries. And that divergence started somewhere in the 1980s. We tracked with most European countries until the 1980s, and then we started to diverge um, for the worse. Um, this high-level data is important because it tells you that despite the fact that we spend more and we have more specialists, looking after uh, our pregnant mothers, we are not seeing the expected results we would expect for spending more money and having more specialized care. He mentioned a 2014 study by the UK's National Institute of Health and Care Excellence, which found that healthy women with low-risk pregnancies had better outcomes when cared for by midwives as opposed to physicians. When doctors look after patients, they are more apt to use procedures. And when a low-risk patient has procedures, the use of those procedures increases the risk of that pregnancy. Um, now, that is their summation based on the data um, that they saw. But what the data does show is that when midwives look after low-risk pregnancies, they have a better outcome than when doctors look after low-risk pregnancies. Um, and it's interesting to note that in many European countries, if you're a low-risk patient, you may never see a doctor throughout your entire pregnancy. Um, from the very start to the end, um, it's all midwives. 
when you say procedures that the, the physicians are more likely to use, what kinds of things are you talking about? Are you talking about like a cesarean section or are you talking about throughout the pregnancy? Um, there are uh, all types of procedures, all the way from, or interventions, all the way from inducing the pregnancy. Um, physicians tend to want to induce a pregnancy if it's going beyond 38 weeks using medications. Midwives, on the other hand, will tend to wait a little bit longer mm-hmm. to allow for natural birth. Um, physicians tend to be more likely to use forceps deliveries, an instrument to bring out the child. Um, cesarean sections is uh, another example. Um, doing an episiotomy, so doing a cut um, in, in the um, birth canal to help the baby um, come out easier. Um, so those are all interventions, and when you look at data, physicians tend to use those interventions more because they are trained to use those things. So clearly, the birth experience is different in other countries compared with here. But what can the United States learn from those differences? What are some things that, that U.S. hospitals and health systems actually can do to improve the care and, and hold the line on the cost? Um, first of all, let's talk about cost. Um, when we look at the data and we look at most European countries, um, 50 to 60% of children are born by midwives. Um, and in most of these countries, a midwife is involved in every delivery. Even when an OBGYN is the team lead, there's a midwife involved. Um, that using midwives more will certainly have an impact um, on cost. And I don't think there's any data to show that we can expect the outcomes or the results to be any worse than they are, given the fact that many countries that use midwives for the um, majority of their care for pregnant women actually have better outcomes than we do. Now, we have to be careful not to then assume that it is the use of midwives that makes the care better. It may be, but we have no evidence to show that. What we do know is that using midwives does not make the care worse. And so I think the U.S. can feel comfortable using more midwives as long as they are well-trained, and we will not see the care get worse, which was the fear in 1910. So that's the one thing. The other things that happen that I think have a significant impact on the quality of the care has to do with standardization. So in the United States, um, these different states have their own medical boards, and they are primarily responsible for regulating health care. And so we have a lot of variability in terms of the care provided all over the United States. And this has to do with childbirth as well as almost every other condition. Uh, And doctors don't do the same things. Every doctor does things the way he thinks is best, and sometimes it's great and sometimes it's not so great. Um, In the U.K., they have standardization of care. The National Institute of Health regulates all care 
all over the country. And they have protocols. And physicians cannot deviate from those protocols and other providers. They have to follow those protocols. And so for that reason, no matter the physician's training, no matter the patient's income or the patient's demographics or the location, everybody gets exactly the same type of protocol depending on the situation. So if a lady is having giving birth and she suddenly starts bleeding, there's a protocol for that. And everybody follows that exact protocol. They do not allow the doctors to deviate. And in, in healthcare, we call that reducing variability. And we know that in healthcare, when we reduce variability, outcomes improve. Um, you know, and that we, we know that as a science. Um, and that is why we, we started using a lot of guidelines in the United States, but it's still very fragmented. Um, so I think that is one of the primary drivers of the increased quality of um, outcomes in the um, UK and other European countries. Um, they follow strict protocols. The other is the fact that in the UK, every maternal death is investigated on a national level. And they look for what happened, why did this patient die, what was the mistake made, what could be done differently. Now, what is important is that this investigation is not done to penalize the caregiver, but rather to say, do we need to change our protocol? What happened here? Did someone go out of protocol or is there something we need to add to the protocol? In some parts of the U.S., we have some of the best care in the world. I don't want people to walk away with the impression that our care is bad everywhere. The problem, I think, is we have so much variability that in other parts of the country, especially parts where um, um, there's a lot of poverty and um, things like that, the care, when you look at the statistics, um, the outcomes are much lower than one would expect. And so when you average it all up, then our average is low. Um, so I, I don't want your listeners to walk away with the impression that care is less than optimal everywhere. Um, in some parts of the country, it's some of the best in the world, but we do have too much variability, and that pulls the average down. As an expectant mother at the time of this interview, I found the information on midwives fascinating. But if I had any intention to leave my physicians and find myself a midwife, and doctors Olson and Josephate, if you're listening, of course I didn't, it turns out there are some pretty big barriers, and that's where the finance piece comes in. Many insurance companies don't cover um, midwives as the primary provider of care. Um, many midwives can't get hospital privileges as the primary provider of care. Um, and then I think litigation is a big issue as well. Um, in the U.S., if there's a bad outcome, the doctor gets sued. And so for that reason, the doctor wants to be um, in control. If he's if fear is if I use a midwife and then something bad happens, um, I'm going to get sued and I'll probably lose lose the um, lawsuit. Um, so I think litigation is a big issue as well as insurance coverage and the ability to get privileges in hospitals. 
That concludes our series on revenue cycle and maternity care. I truly hope you've enjoyed listening as much as I've enjoyed putting it together. We've got a couple of great new series in the works for 2019, and we'll be sure to let you know when those will be starting. For now, let's move on to our next segment. I had the opportunity recently to talk with Matt Houston, Vice President of Customer Operations and Product Management of ePay at GHX, our sponsor for this week's podcast. We discussed the opportunities payment process automation provides to healthcare organizations. What are the greatest opportunities for health systems in automating processes? There's a ton of them, and, and I'll kind of split them out. There's some there's some opportunities that are just across the board, regardless of kind of what part of the function uh, people are looking at, um, you know, increasing their automation. And some of those are around um, reducing costs. So clearly, um, when you move to an automated system, uh, you know, that, that's really helping to replace and improve an existing function, you should always expect to get um, a cost reduction there. Um, so that's a big one, cost reduction. And usually a complement is around um, increased efficiency. So that usually um, enables folks to become a lot more efficient at processes they're currently doing today, which either means in a lot of cases they're practically able to scale better. So when you have um, hospital systems going through uh, merger acquisition or those kinds of activities and you're sort of increasing the scope of a certain function very often, um, if you have automation in place or can do that in conjunction with that, it allows you to do more with less um, in, in a real way that's not impacting um, you know, people uh, and making asking them to do more with less, you're actually enabling, in, literally enabling the people to do more because the automation is picking up the other stuff. Um, it also lets you, as a complement to that, apply people differently. So there may be much higher value activity that you want folks to be uh, participating in that today because you're manual, you can't do. Um, some obvious ones there are very often, you know, the, the revenue capture side of revenue cycle is a... Uh, um, more more critical and impacting function very often with uh, the complexity of, of that part of the business cycle for healthcare today um, than doing traditional uh, AP work or um, other back office work. So um, if it's possible to create automation in supply chain or in um, AP or other places like that, um, a lot of times those skill sets transfer nicely to places like Revenue Cycle um, and enable uh, those uh, areas to get a lot more uh, efficient and get more attention as well. Uh, and then another one that a lot of folks um, don't talk about a lot but is, is very relevant is you also get to a point where typically with automation comes greater transparency, visibility, um, and data capture. So that gives you a lot more confidence in your uh, reporting and also in the data that you're gathering to support other analytical events um, as a business. So um, all those things are really um, outgrowths and benefits from automation in general. And then when you apply that to specifically to the area of payments, um, you get all those benefits. And then in addition, you also get um, the ability to capture more incentives for timely payment and those kinds of things. So um, to some degree, you're hitting, you're hitting both sides there because there's a potentially hard dollar benefit as well as all the uh, both from uh, incentive and cost reduction, and then you get a number of benefits from an operational perspective. So, you know, I think comprehensively, those are the things that are really important to always be sort of top of mind. It's, it's like a never-ending journey, right, to uh, look at your um, operation and think about the places where you can continue to drive efficiency and very often that the outcome of those efficiency 
um, investigations means you need to do more automation. So that's, that's really how we look at that from a GHX perspective. But realizing these opportunities can come with challenges. One big one, according to Houston, is inertia. When healthcare organizations are used to doing things the way they always have, it can be difficult to abandon old processes, even inefficient ones. Another is project fatigue. With so many initiatives happening at once, organizations can find it hard to focus on just one. In other words, the first step to adopting a new technology is to consider the people who will be using it. I think there's a well-worn um, adage that, you know, really to be complete in looking at any given project, you want to make sure that you're really comprehensively looking at the, you know, people, the people, the process, and the technology. Um, and I couldn't agree, agree more that we, we certainly see that very often there's technology at the center of some of these decisions, especially when we're talking about um, ways to provide greater automation and efficiency to business process. Um, you know, in many cases, the center point of the how to achieve those ends is a technology piece. Um, but I could not agree with you more that, that both in theory and in practice, um, the places that people have to be really mindful and make sure that, you know, the investment is, is right, the, the people are right, and that the sponsorship is right, is really around the people on the process side. Um, because clearly you have to have the people to really make the action happen, make sure it stays prioritized, um, you know, keep the momentum going and adopt as, as users um, the solution. And then um, you know, the process is going to change. So there, there's almost, um, there's very, I can't really think of any exact examples off the top of my head. So I'm sure there may be some, but there are very few examples of this kind of transformation that don't require process transformation. And so that sort of doubles back on the people who are the actors or basically the, the people driving those functions that need to change what they're doing every day as a result of this new efficiency. Um, and process change is hard. So um, I think your comments are really well-placed because the, the people in the process, um, you could argue once the decision has been made around a solution or technology, um, the people in the process become much more critical in the overall success uh, and the long-term success of any given sort of technology or solution project, um, in particular with regard to uh, automation. So what can leaders do to be champions for a process change and bring their people along to ensure that it that it really goes well? Sure. Um, I think that you, you sort of indirectly provided a great setup for that question because I think you know, first of all, the, the people, having people assigned and empowered um, to lead a project around this, whether it's in the initial phase of assessing um, the opportunity or, or actually getting into the weeds of making a decision and then actually implementing, um, and that's just at a super high level, but, but really in order for any of that to be successful, um, you have to have people assigned that are, that are really in the right place in the organization and empower them to be able to move forward. Um, and that means helping them with prioritization and focus and, and sort of clearing the way. Um, there also needs to be, you know, effective sponsorship. So, uh, you know, I think everyone at one point in their career or other has lived through a situation where they're either in or um, leading a project that, um, you know, they, they feel empowered and they have the right charter. But when push comes to shove, the sponsorship really isn't there in the way it needs to be. Um, and that is a significant, that can be a significant problem, um, can even completely kill a project. Um, 
just to not have the right level of sponsorship and real commitment from the sponsors to um, ensure that there's alignment and support for the initiative. So um, I think those things are, are really critical key components um, around uh, making sure that it's successful. And, and I think I'd go back to your point, Erica, which is, um, you know, it really comes back to the people. And then I would add on to that, that the process that those folks follow to be able to um, create a change event um, around this adoption um, is also really critical. So um, right back to your point a minute ago uh, that underscores the importance of the people in the process piece um, in order to uh, ensure a smooth transition and ensure success um, and really look across the, those primary, the primary arc of any given um, transition project like this, which is, you know, assess your opportunity and, you know, what does that look like? What's your problem statement and, and what can you solve for? Um, evaluating the options that can help you solve that problem, the solutions that are available to you. Um, again, like we talked about, make sure that there's that leadership um, buy-in and support and importantly sponsorship um, to make the project a success. And then, you know, ultimately having the right resources. GHX is a healthcare business and data automation company, empowering healthcare organizations to enable better patient care and maximize industry savings using its world-class cloud-based supply chain technology exchange platform, solutions, analytics, and services. You can learn more about the company at ghx.com. Now it's time for Fast Five, five fast facts about a hot healthcare topic. Today, five trends in hospital mergers and acquisitions. Not only have the number of hospital mergers and acquisitions increased over the past decade, but so has the size of transactions, with many larger health systems announcing M&A activity. Top drivers for M&A include increased market share, increased access to capital, and increased efficiencies. Despite the goal of cost efficiencies, many acquired hospitals' financial performance does not improve in the first two years after the acquisition. Quality measures for acquired hospitals tend to stay the same or improve, with the most common area of improvement being patient experience. Investment in a new health IT system is a common use of the increased capital that comes from M&A activity. The information for this Fast Five came from Hospital M&A, a report co-authored by HFMA and the Deloitte Center for Health Solutions. To download this report, visit hfma.org slash mergers. As we close out our last episode of 2018, we wanted to take a moment to thank you all for tuning in. It's been a pleasure interacting with you via email, and I hope you'll continue to write to us at podcast at hfma.org. On behalf of our podcast team and everyone here at HFMA, we all wish you happy holidays and a wonderful new year. Voices in Healthcare Finance is produced by the Healthcare Financial Management Association and written and hosted by me, Erica Grotto. Our news segment is written and reported by Rich Daly. Sound editing this week is by Brian Kuhn and Linda Chandler. HFMA's president is Joe Pfeiffer. Special thanks to our sponsor this week, GHX. 
And a very special thanks to my brave coworkers who showed up to record our holiday song. We'll see you in 2019.